You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For June 9th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. The excitement, or hype depending on your point of view, around hydrogen as an energy carrier has been growing significantly over the past year or so because it can help decarbonize the ways that we use energy and make it easier to use renewable power from variable sources like wind and solar on demand. But as our regular listeners know, it's a very complex picture, running the gamut from real projects to vaporware. That's why we did episodes 142, 143, and 147, to help our listeners separate fact from fiction. Hydrogen is also being increasingly touted by major fossil fuel companies as a potential extension of their existing businesses that can buy them a little more time before the energy transition simply renders them obsolete. But as our recent episodes made clear, the cost of green hydrogen produced only from carbon-free sources is still considerably higher than that of the gray hydrogen that currently dominates the global production system. If truly carbon-free green hydrogen is going to reach price parity with its dirtier cousins, it's going to need some help, both to bring down its production costs and to level the playing field with dirtier forms. But by how much? What kind of a carbon price would be needed to level the playing field, and how much would the cost of producing green hydrogen need to fall? And when do these repricings need to occur if Europe is to achieve its carbon reduction goals under the Paris Agreement? Our guest in this episode is the first I've seen to actually run those numbers and try to figure that out. And it will come as no surprise to our longtime listeners that this innovative analysis has been done by none other than Mark Lewis, head of climate change investment research at BNP Paribas Asset Management in Paris, who previously joined us in episodes 76 and 110. He has been asking these questions for the past year, and today he joins us to share his results using the European Trading System for Carbon Emissions Allowances as a basis. And while the question of what price we need to put on carbon for green hydrogen to play its part in the energy transition may seem like a simple one on its face, I assure you that it's anything but. Mark's analysis encompasses all sorts of real-world complexities, including the outlook for carbon policy, the outlook for interest rates, and the challenges of pricing carbon in global trade, as well as several connections to topics we recently covered with Bob Litterman in episode 135 and the views of Jeremy Grantham in episode 144. I think it's a fascinating bit of analysis that you're all going to enjoy. But before we go to the interview, we have some very exciting news to share. Thanks to the steady and loyal support of our listeners since we launched this show five and a half years ago, it has finally grown to a fully self-sustaining business, and it can now support me full-time in addition to properly paying the rest of the team. As of this episode, I have moved on from my full-time job at RMI in order to fully embrace the exciting opportunities that await our podcast and to devote my full attention and energy to making the Energy Transition Show even bigger and better. 
I'm incredibly excited to be able to make this long-awaited step and to start working on some new energy transition so features that we've been wanting to build for a long time, but which just weren't feasible while I only had nights and weekends to devote to the podcast. Our decision to build this podcast around a paid subscription model, instead of relying on advertisers and sponsors for revenue, was a highly irregular one five years ago, especially considering that it made us the only energy podcast in the world, as far as I know, that asked listeners to pay for it. More than a few savvy media professionals told me that it would never work. But since we launched, the media landscape has changed, the advertising business has cratered, and now content producers of all kinds are flocking to Substack and other platforms based on subscription models. And the Energy Transition Show now has a robust subscriber base that can sustain us with a product that is built on a platform we custom-built for ourselves, which we own 100%. So we never have to worry about our platform being sold or shut down and taking our show down with it, as has already happened to some other podcasts hosted by major media organizations organizations. We can sustain this for as long as we like. And personally, I am absolutely thrilled to be able to fully devote my energies to the seventh and crowning act of my long and winding professional career. So I want to thank all of you who have supported our show and made this possible. I'm honored by your faith in us, and I'm incredibly eager to show you what we have in store for you next. It's going to be great. To mark this momentous event, we're going to be launching a refresh of the show in August to give it a shiny new face for this next phase. And I'm going to personally take a break from creating the show for the month of July. After launching more than 150 episodes like Clockwork every other Wednesday without interruption for the past five and a half years, I need a minute to catch my breath. But we aren't going to just leave you with nothing to listen to in July. Energy Transition Show producer Justin Ritchie has put together about a two and a half hour best of episode, which we will launch during our July break. Compiled from our most downloaded shows, it will feature clips that were previously only available to members so that non-members can get a taste of what they've been missing. And to make this personal transition complete, I have also departed from my home in Boulder, Colorado, and embarked on a new mobile lifestyle that will enable me to explore and report on energy transition stories all over the world, as circumstances and the course of the pandemic allows. So, if you have an idea for a show about an energy transition story happening near you, wherever in the world you may be, and you'd like me to put it on my list of potential future destinations, please drop me a line at chris at energytransitionshow.com and tell me about it. Maybe I'll come to your town. So stay tuned for all of that. And again, from the bottom of my heart to our subscribers, thank you. And for one final administrative note before we go to the interview, I just want to extend a big welcome to our latest bulk licensee, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. We're so pleased to have you join our membership. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll have a look at an interesting new electric light aircraft, and we'll have another edition of our ever-popular recurring feature, Coal Death Watch. And now, our conversation with Mark Lewis, recorded May 12th, 2021. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome, Mark, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. Great to be back with you. Yeah. So today I want to return to a subject that you last discussed with us in episode 76, which was way back in August 2018, which is wow. the European <laughs> right time flies, which is the European Emissions Trading System or right. ETS. At the time the price that this cap and trade system was fetching for emissions allowances had been much too low for years due to an unintended surplus of emissions credits as we discussed in that episode. Right. But you were looking at how the EU was embarking on a plan at the time called the market Stability Reserve, or MSR, yeah. to fix that problem by gradually removing the surplus in the carbon trading market. And in fact, you were hopeful 
that it would be removed by 2023 and that right. the carbon prices would rise back to a meaningful level. Yes. But you also noted that they might still not be quite high enough to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement or to exactly. sustain carbon capture and sequestration technologies. Right. So at the time, you pointed out that the European carbon allowances had been the best performing energy commodity in the world over the previous 12 months. That's right. So the market definitely anticipated that the price of emissions allowances was going to go up, as indeed it did. Yeah. And at the time of that recording, the price of an allowance to emit a ton of carbon emissions was 17.4 euros. Right. Right. So today, I'd like to discuss your updated views on the progress of the ETS and see what you think the requisite price needs to be in the future in order to achieve Europe's climate goals. But before we do that, Maybe you could just give us a bit of a recap on what has happened in the ETS market over the two and a half years since we recorded episode 76. Sure, absolutely. And the short answer, Chris, is lots has happened. I think if you go back to that last conversation we had on this topic three years ago now, um, the most important thing is we had, as you mentioned, that market stability reserve reform of the market, which was a very important technical change in the market because effectively it was enabling a form of what I I make the analogy with central banking. This allows for the public authorities in Europe, the European Commission, to intervene in the market in the same way that a central bank can intervene in the market for, well, whether it be the money markets to influence the interest rate or the foreign exchange market to influence the level of one currency against another. The market stability reserve is a way for the European Commission to remove oversupply in the market and therefore get the price back on a more meaningful trajectory. So that was a very important technical reform of the market. But the really significant change has been the European Union's announcement 12 months ago, which is now being formally enacted in legislation to commit the EU to a net zero emissions target by 2050. So what we're going to have within the next month and a half, because the legislation is almost completed, is a legally binding target within the European Union on all entities, be it governments or corporations that are covered by the EU ETS to get their emissions down to net zero by 2050. And with those two changes to the overall framework of the EU ETS, number one, the long-term policy target of net zero emissions by 2050, and number two, a technical change to the way the market functions, which gives investors and the companies that have compliance requirements under the EU ETS, much greater confidence that the system can deliver what the ultimate policy objective is telling it it should be delivering. We've seen this tremendous re-rating of carbon prices in Europe. And funnily enough, you mentioned there in the intro, Chris, that at the last time we spoke about this, the price had trebled over the previous year um, to 17 euros. Well, if you take that 17 euros number and look at the price today, as we are recording this today, the price has just gone through another all-time high and we're currently trading right now at 55 euros and 30 cents. So that's about... That's another trebling, basically. Right. I mean, if we put that in US dollar terms, that is $66 a ton. Wow. So it's trebled again since the last time we had this conversation, and it's up now, over the last 12 months, it's up 200%. So this is really phenomenal 
because it was trading at 18 euros even a year ago. You know, it went up, it went back down again. And now the fundamental difference now is this market is in the process and maybe that that process hasn't finished yet, but we've entered a new pricing paradigm. That's the really important thing for your listeners to understand because the Mm. market now sees an end game and it sees a framework for the EU ETS that can deliver on that policy goal. And that's why the pricing paradigm has been completely transformed. And we've entered genuinely, I think, a new pricing paradigm for this commodity. How would you characterize that pricing paradigm? Like, what has it actually done? Yeah. So let's not be too technical about this, but let's think about what we're really trying to achieve here. The European carbon market covers about 50% of the EU's emissions. And as a result, it is the single most important policy for delivering net zero emissions, decarbonization of the EU economy by 2050, because it's effectively covering all of the heavy industrial emissions in the European Union. What is not covered is agriculture, buildings, and transport. But all the heavy industry emissions, the power sector, chemicals, oil refiners, steel, etc., all of that is covered. Now, for the first 15 years of this market's existence, this market came into being in 2005. And for the first 15 years, until last year, literally, we only ever traded through 30 euros a tonne, two or three times, and it never remained above 30 euros a tonne for more than a day or two when it did go through 30 euros a tonne. And having taken 15 years to convincingly go through the 30 euro a tonne level, and that really happened at the end of last year, it's only taken another three and a half months to go from 30 to 55 today. So that's why I say something fundamental has changed in the paradigm. So If you want to understand what's changed in the paradigm, the way I would describe it is as follows. For the first 15 years, this market was pricing CO2 off the perceived price necessary to effect fuel switching in the power generation sector, to get gas-fired power stations to run ahead of coal-fired power stations. Gas in Europe is much more expensive than gas in the United States. So ordinarily, In the absence of a carbon price, obviously gas is half as carbon intensive as coal. So for every megawatt hour of gas-fired power that you produce, you're only emitting half the amount of CO2. So if the CO2 price is high enough, gas will move above coal in the merit order. But the natural order of things in the absence of a carbon price is that coal is cheaper than gas. So for the first 15 years, that's how the market has priced. And And that's fair enough as far as it goes, because the power generation sector accounts for about 50% of the emissions within the EU ETS. So about 25% of overall EU emissions, 50% of the emissions covered by the ETS. But what we're saying now is, what the market is telling us with this repricing of carbon is that If we're going to get to net zero emissions, we have to do more than decarbonize the power generation sector. We have to start thinking about the carbon price that that really makes a meaningful difference to the carbon emissions of the rest of heavy industry in Europe, in the steel sector, the oil refinery sector, cement, and so on. And the way to think about that, I think, and in my view, this is what the market is now doing, is to say, okay, we know that the ultimate policy objective is net zero by 2050. We also know 
that the European Commission thinks that green hydrogen has to be a significant part of the solution to getting to net zero. Whether that is actually what will happen in the end will obviously depend on the emergence of other technologies, energy storage, batteries, and how quickly they develop and so on. But from today's vantage point, the policy incentives in Europe are being aligned to scaling up green hydrogen. And so to me, when I was thinking about this last year, the question became, okay, if we can't get to net zero without green hydrogen being a meaningful part of the mix, at least as far as the European Commission thinks in terms of putting the policies together, then really what we're saying is, what's the carbon price we need to make green hydrogen competitive with grade hydrogen by the date that the EU wants to see green hydrogen playing a meaningful role. Now, what the European Commission has said is we want to be producing 10 million tonnes of green hydrogen a year by 2030. So to me, the question became, what's the carbon price you need to make green hydrogen competitive with grey hydrogen by 2030? And on the basis of all the analysis I did and the assumptions I made about the evolution of gas prices, because natural gas is the main input for producing grey hydrogen, I worked out that you need a carbon price of about 100 euros a tonne by 2030 to make green hydrogen competitive with grey hydrogen. And therefore, the question as to the fair value of carbon today became for me, what's the implied fair value today of a carbon price of 100 euros a tonne in 2030? So that's a function of the discount rate. I discount back at 6%, which is the weighted average the average weighted average cost of capital for the entities that are covered by the EU ETS. And you get to a carbon price of anywhere between 42 and 59 euros a tonne today. I published my report on green hydrogen and carbon pricing in early October. At that time, the carbon price was 26 euros a tonne. So we've literally doubled the price in the last seven months since that report was published. And we're now right in the middle of the fair value range on that pricing framework as we have this conversation today. So at 55 euros a tonne, well, you're starting to move to the upper end of that range I derived from that calculation. But the short answer to your question as a result, summing all of that up, is that I think we're moving to a pricing paradigm that was previously based on fuel switching in the power sector and is now increasingly oriented to the future and the pricing paradigm necessary for green hydrogen to displace grey hydrogen in the energy mix in Europe. <laughs> that's the best reaction i've ever had to my report by the way. <laughs> and now we're done all right we can just end this conversation here so understanding all that and i do want to dive into the question of discount rates and so on in a bit but right but just to kind of pick up a loose end from the previous conversation. At that time, you were expecting the carbon allowance surplus to be removed by 2023. And I'm wondering if that forecast still holds. And then also in furtherance of this 2050 goal, there's also an interim goal for 2030, right? So right. what are we looking at here really in terms of the near-term evolution of this market? Yeah, that's a great question because that's what the market is focused on right now. And I guess the easy way to think about this is the impact of COVID last year was devastating in terms of carbon emissions in Europe. So naturally, you would expect the demand 
for emissions allowances to decline significantly because of the hit to the economy and therefore the hit to emissions. So the surplus we were discussing the last time we talked about this, Chris, is if anything greater than it was back then. So if I were doing this on a like-for-like basis, I would say, no, I wouldn't expect the surplus to be eradicated by 2023 because we've now had this extra hit through the pandemic. However, what we also have happening right now is the European Commission reviewing the need to tighten its emissions cap for the EU ETS for 2030, as you rightly said, because it follows from the much greater level of ambition for 2050. If we're going to get to net zero by 2050, then we have to have a steeper emissions reduction trajectory between now and 2030 as the first major staging post towards that net zero goal by 2050. So in the next month, month and a half, we will find out from the European Commission its proposed adjustment to the cap for 2030. If you assume, I mean, I've mentioned the point already that the EU ETS accounts for about 50% of overall emissions in the EU, but it's important to remember the EU ETS is always taking on a disproportionately large share of the overall emissions reduction for the entire European Union, because in a sense, that's the whole point of having a market. You put a price on carbon in the traded sector where you can reduce emissions most efficiently and most economically. And therefore, it makes sense to put more of the burden on that section of the economy that can more easily trade carbon allowances. So I would think what we're looking at here now is a very significant tightening of the overall cap to 2030, probably an extra 1.6 billion tonnes will have to be removed from the overall cap between now and 2030. And just to put that into context, emissions in the EU ETS for 2020 are going to come in at around the sort of 1.25 billion, 1.3 billion level. Therefore, you're taking out more than a year's worth of emissions from the overall allowed cap. That's a very significant reduction. And that will really help to tighten the market and remove concerns about oversupply. In addition to the MSR that we talked about earlier, having an ongoing role on a year-to-year basis. So I think it's the combination of those two factors that will really set the market and has set the market's mind at ease. That's why the price is where it is today. And just to put it into context, Chris, just to remind your listeners from the last time we talked about this, compare what's happened with the COVID pandemic with what happened with the global financial crisis in 2008-2009. The carbon price in July 2008, that heady summer when all commodity prices energy commodities hit their highs when the oil price traded at $147 a barrel. That was the first time we hit 30 euros a tonne in the current setup of the EU ETS. But seven, eight months later, because of the global financial crisis, the price fell from 30 to 8 euros a tonne. And that's because we didn't have the market stability reserve and because we didn't have a long-term policy goal that would have given the market confidence that, well... There's an oversupply in the short term, but the long-term policy goal dictates that the market be tightened, and that's what will happen. So this has been a complete game changer. I think otherwise, in the absence of the MSR and that long-term policy goal, the price would have fallen very dramatically. And in fact, it did for about 
three or four weeks. The price did drop this time last year, April, when the lockdowns in Europe were at their peak, the first wave of lockdowns. We fell from 26 euros a tonne to 14 euros a tonne very quickly. But the difference was the price recovered very quickly as well. So that's why I say, you know, there are all kinds of reasons for thinking we are in an entirely new pricing paradigm now for carbon. You're seeing different kinds of investors entering the market, by the way. I mean, this is a market that has traditionally been dominated by two kinds of players. One, the EU ETS compliance players themselves, that's to say, all of the utilities, steel companies, oil companies that have compliance obligations. And on the other hand, financial players, typically hedge funds who trade a lot of other commodities and find this just a natural extension of their day-to-day business. But in the last three or four months, you've seen ETFs being launched on carbon and you're seeing people really be attracted to this. I think in part, not only because of what's happening in Europe, but because of the global conversation on climate change changing. I mean, with the change of the administration in the United States, I mean, one of these ETFs that's been launched is a US-based ETF. You're seeing more interest from US-based investors in what's happening in the European carbon market. So Mm. that's really interesting. Yeah, it is. Okay, so there's sort of a broad global recognition of this asset class, more interest coming into the sector, more confidence that the ETS is in fact stable, that it's doing what it was intended to do. But also you're identifying that there's this other transition where the ETS, its main function had been to sort of push coal off the grid. Right Now its main function needs to transition to attracting green hydrogen versus gray. And this is something that we've talked about in recent episodes on this show with Simon Evans in episodes 142 and 143, and then just recently with Gnervomir Fleece in episode 147. And clearly, it only makes sense to talk about green hydrogen as an actual climate solution because the other forms of hydrogen production still emit carbon, certainly true of green hydrogen. And as Simon pointed out, green hydrogen is currently about 1% of the global (laughs) hydrogen production. Most of the stuff that's being pushed is gray. And one of the things that concerned me about that is the board order trading adjustment that's supposed to somehow deal with this. Right. So what are your thoughts on that point? Yeah, so a few moving parts here. I mean, I think just to put the green hydrogen usage in current consumption into further context, I mean, it's important to note that at the moment in Europe, and I think pretty much everywhere in the world, hydrogen is used today almost exclusively as an industrial feedstock. It's not yet being used primarily as an energy carrier in itself. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions.
To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Eviation, an electric aircraft startup, is preparing for the first test flights of its all-electric aircraft named Alice. The luxury plane will carry two crew and nine passengers at cruise speeds of up to 253 miles per hour, or 407 kilometers per hour, for 506 miles, or 814 kilometers, on a single charge of its 820 kilowatt hour battery pack. The battery pack alone weighs 8,200 pounds, or 3,720 kilograms, which is more than half of the aircraft's maximum takeoff weight. Magnix Electric is providing three variable-pitch pusher props for the futuristically styled Alice, with one mounted on the back of a pod at the end of each wing and a third on the tail. You may recall from the news segment of episode 148 that Magnix is also producing the propulsion units for a new fleet of all-electric seaplanes. And now it's time for another edition of... Cold Death Watch! Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network. <laughs>